My name is Brian. I'm one of the elders here at North Shore. I get to read the scripture for today and then pray for us. Scriptures out of Luke 11, verses 1 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as Jesus taught his disciples, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impedance, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will, he give, him, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are great and holy and so worthy of our praise. You deserve to be worshipped for the good and perfect God that you are. We are blessed to be able to openly worship and listen to your word be spoken in freedom. We have it easy. And sometimes having it easy makes us complacent. So Father, I pray that each and every one of us here would not become complacent or overly comfortable where you and our need of you begins to fade. We need you bright and vivid in our life because we are weak, but you are strong. Thank you for loving us so much that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And Father, we recognize that today is the anniversary of the, the Twin Towers tragedy in New York. Many people lost their lives. We lift those up that are affected and we pray that you be glorified somehow through it all. We pray for our men here also at North Shore and the upcoming men's retreat. Father, we have used this, Father, you have used this event to do some serious work in guys' lives. We pray that this year would glorify you even more and that everyone that should be there will be there. And Father, we pray for Jim Copsey and that, that you would grant him favor with those that are there that will decide whether or not to give him a new trial. We also pray for the continued he uh, healing of Bethany's leg. We also pray for Michelle Ross. She just had surgery this week. We pray that the pain would go away and that the healing would speed up. And Father, there is so much need in this world. We could go on and on with all the problems and suffering just in our community, much less the rest of the world. So help us to first rely on you when pain and suffering begins and to put our trust in you. Even when the answers we get to whatever is going on, 
may not be what we're looking for, but help us to hope for your will to be done and to be confident that the future you give us is the best possible future, whatever it may be. Thank you, God, that we have a rock that cannot be moved. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, Grace, thank you for your word. God, make it a light to our path. God, use it to draw us closer to Jesus. And God, that can't happen unless your spirit is moving in our hearts and our minds. Help us to stay focused. Help us to see what your word is for us today. And through it all, may Christ be made much of. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the Sunday after Labor Day. And in some ways, this is like the new year for the church ministry year. The calendar year obviously begins in January, but in some ways the church ministry year <clears throat> begins today because the Sunday school started up across all ages. Other ministries like, well, the men's ministry, you just heard about the men's retreat, women's ministry, small groups, a lot of those things are gearing up again. And so in some ways it's like a, a new year. And in the new year, we always start off with an emphasis on prayer, and Lord willing, we'll do that again in January, but it seems like, given the fact that this is the beginning of our ministry, New Year, and anything, any ministry done without prayer is destined to be fruitless, uh, it seemed like a good time to break into our series from Ephesians and spend some time and focus on prayer, and that's why you heard Luke 11 today. One of the challenges that everyone faces in prayer is motivation. Now, when we're deeply burdened by some crushing need, motivation is not a problem. <laughs> we are very quick to get down on our knees, on our face, and cry out to God. But when the burden lifts and life gets close to normal again, whatever that looks like, it's, it's easy for us to lose some of that motivation. And one reason is because it's, it's easy for us to wonder, albeit in unbelief, how serious God is about answering our prayer. And so we want to talk about that today, and from the text, see, he couldn't possibly be more serious about answering our prayer. How and why God is anxious to answer our prayer. Again, from Luke chapter 11 that Brian just read, one of the striking things that you may have noticed in this text is we, we read this, and of course that's the Lord's Prayer, Luke's version of it, which is just a little different than Matthew's. But one of the things that strikes us when we read the whole section is you have four verses on the Lord's Prayer, and then you have nine verses of Jesus giving application to the Lord's Prayer. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's how God led Luke. So this morning, I want us to take that proportion and apply it to this message with some time focused on the Lord's Prayer, but even more focused on the application. The first two verses of chapter 11 are very familiar to us. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. It's important to remember that the disciples already knew how to pray. I mean, these were good Jews. They'd been to the, to the temple all of their lives. They knew how to pray. What gets them here is they want to know how to pray like Jesus prayed. It's implied here. It's stated 
explicitly in other places, but Luke implies it because he says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Okay, they'd seen Jesus pray, and for whatever reason, maybe they saw answers, maybe they just saw the beauty of his prayer. We're not exactly sure what attracted them, but they said, I want to pray like he prays. And so they justify that by saying, well, John taught his disciples how to pray as well. And so he then gives them this, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Well, what was Jesus' main goal in teaching his disciples this prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer? What was his aim? What was he about here? One commentator is helpful. He says, I think this is spot on. He says, Jesus intends the model prayer to function like a tuning fork by which disciples can measure their prayers and their lives and make sure that they're in the right pitch. It is used as an outline that those who pray it may fill out with their own words. I love that tuning fork illustration. A tuning fork, for those of you who may not know, it's a metal fork that's been manufactured in a certain way with a certain metal so that when it is struck, it resonates or it rings out a certain pitch that is perfectly in tune. That's why they call it a tuning fork. And then you, you use the tuning fork as the guide. When you hear an orchestra concert, the concert master or the concert mistress plays A on the violin to tune him up. He's the guide. Well, the tuning fork is the guide as then all the other instruments are brought to match the exact pitch of the tuning fork. Well, the Lord's Prayer is a tuning fork in the sense that we're to take our prayers and our spiritual lives and make sure that they are in tune or in sync with what the prayer reflects as God's priority and value. Okay, For instance, if our prayers and our spiritual lives are in tune with God, we're going to relate to God with the intimacy of a child to a father because he begins his prayer, our father. We're in tune with God when our relationship with God reflects the reverence of Jesus because he doesn't just pray to our father, it's our father in heaven. And that's important because it's not just intimacy, there's transcendence here. He's not like any other father. This is a God to be approached with intimacy but also with deep reverence. That's a person who's in tune with God, if they do that in their prayer life. We know we're in tune with God when, like Jesus, more than anything else, we are burdened by the concern that God's name, God's fame in our lives, in our church, in this world, that that name would be hallowed. That is, that our heart's burning desire would be that the name of God would, by all people everywhere, be recognized and honored and set apart as holy and unique. That's the first petition. That's the most important petition in the Lord's Prayer. And so we need to ask ourselves, is that my heart? Is my heart in tune with that priority seen in the prayer? Our hearts are in tune with God when we express a desire for God's kingdom, that is, his kingdom rule, to be more, more fully manifest in earth as it is in heaven. Praying for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven uh, reflects that we have a passion that our church and our world would radiate the influence of the lordship of Christ and that Jesus would come back soon to establish his kingdom. When our hearts cry out 
for those kind of things, then our hearts are in tune with God. We're in tune with God when our prayers and our lives express humble dependence upon God for our everyday needs, like daily bread. God-tuned hearts also humbly confess their sins and trespasses, as well as their desire to forgive others as they've been forgiven. When we go to God in faith for help resisting sin and delivering us from its evil grip, that's a sign that our heart, at least in that way, is in tune with God. If those desires and those values and those priorities are not the driving forces in our lives, then our lives are badly out of tune with God. One of the ways that we can tell is when we pray the Lord's Prayer, is do we pray it as if we're reciting it? Or do we pray it like, oh God, you've got to do this. This is so crucial. One of the problems with being so familiar with certain texts is we tend to not think deeply about them. And yet the Lord's Prayer represents the things that God cares about the most. And so if we pray that and we're only reciting words, that indicates that we're significantly out of tune with God. We need to make sure that as we're praying those prayers, we, yes, hallowed be your name above all else. God, do that, whatever the cost, whatever the cost to me, do that. Well, that's all we want to say about the Lord's Prayer. As we saw when Brian read these verses, more energy is given by Jesus into the application. And the application that Jesus gives here are these two very short parables immediately following the Lord's Prayer. He's given them the model prayer, but now he wants them to, to see something special. He emphasizes a certain truth about the prayer. And the truth that he really emphasizes, which we'll see as we go through these parables, is that we should be confident that God will answer our prayers spoken in line with this modeled prayer. We can be confident he's going to answer those things. We can be supremely confident. And that's the point of his application. If we understand what Jesus is saying here, we should walk away from this going, I have a confidence that Jesus is going to do what he says, that God is going to hear my prayer. This is a different application to the Lord's Prayer than Matthew gives. Matthew, he gives the Lord's Prayer, and then he talks about making sure that we forgive those who have sinned against us if we want to be forgiven. So clearly he's taking that line of the prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and he's focusing on that line. As we'll see, he's focusing on another line here. When we come to Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, we're going to see the Holy Spirit lead him to draw a different application, not about forgiveness, but about something else. Now, the first of these two very short parables after the Lord's Prayer have been misunderstood by just about everybody, <laughs> to the point where many believers come away from this saying, that he teaches something that is exactly the opposite of what he's really teaching. Let me just read it again, beginning at this first parable in verse 5. And he, Jesus, said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him, that friend, at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in, with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. 
And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Okay. Many people, when they read this, or when they've heard it explained, they read this parable to understand that the man in the house who doesn't want to be bothered, that that represents God. That's a totally wrong understanding of the parable. But the understanding goes something like this. God is the master of the house, and though sometimes, for his own good reasons, he takes his time in answering prayers. But if we keep pestering him, he will eventually grant our request, just as the man in the parable did. Many wrongly understand this parable to be teaching that we need to keep asking God again and again and again until our prayer compels God to respond. It's a total misunderstanding of the prayer, but not that. It frankly obscures a really encouraging truth that it does teach. Now, it's clearly right that we pray persistently. In Luke chapter 18, he tells a parable that teaches that very truth, the parable of the persistent widow who appears before the judge. That tells us that persistence in prayer is important. So it's not that that's not important, it's just not that what this teaches at all. In order for us to rightly understand what Jesus is teaching in the parable, we have to do something that's kind of a stretch for us, and that is we have to place ourselves into ancient Near Eastern priorities and values, which in the case of what's highlighted here are incredibly different than our own. That's one reason why it's easy to misinterpret this, because the world of Jesus in this respect is so radically different than ours, and so it's easy for us to misrepresent that. The difference that this parable highlights between our two cultures is the incredible priority that Jesus' culture places on showing hospitality to those who are in need. Okay? It was, and still for the most part is in the Middle East today, considered a sacred duty. And that's a carefully chosen word, a sacred duty to extend hospitality to someone in need, irrespective of the hour of the day. Turning away a needy person, much less a friend in need, which is the situation in the parable, who's coming to you for, for help, that would have been considered absolutely unthinkable for a Jew in Jesus' day. So Jesus asked at the beginning, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, now to our Western ears, and in Western culture, hospitality is very much an option. I'll be hospitable to you if it works out for me, if it's not too much of an inconvenience. Totally upside down from where Jesus is, okay? So to our Western ears, when we hear, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, and then the rest, we hear, which of you would be so thoughtless and selfish to disturb your friend in the middle of the night for some bread? That's not what he's saying. It's just the opposite, actually, of what he's asking. When you read the parable carefully, you discover that the point of his question is to inquire, which of you has a friend who would respond in this selfish, loathsome manner when you asked him to provide some needed hospitality to you. That's the point. And the expected answer in that culture would be, we would never call a person who would do something like that a friend. Or even a nice person. A person's a rogue. Now in the West, again, where hospitality is kind of an optional thing when we have enough time and energy, we tend to wrongly identify the father 
And we take pity on him for having to bear this huge inconvenience of having to wake up his kids to get this guy three loaves of bread. We'd probably never make this kind of request to one of our friends at midnight. But if we did, we would couch it in such apologetic terms so that it would be as inoffensive as possible in our culture. We'd probably say something, you know, I am so, so, so sorry to bother you at this time of night and to wake up your family, but if you could just have a moment of your time to come and give me some help, I'm sure this person that's visiting me is in absolutely desperate need, so could you please cough up some? We'd be so just tripping over ourselves because we'd be embarrassed to ask for this kind of help. Okay, we're upside down from Jesus' culture at this point. We can't relate to that. That kind of groveling, apologetic request would be seen as placing a distance between you and the other person who is supposed to be your friend. Okay? So take that understanding and then think for a moment about the fact that Jesus applies that understanding of friendship to his disciples, to us. Jesus tells this parable in part to communicate that his disciples are his friends, which he says later in John 15 explicitly. A friend of the master of the house can absolutely expect him to meet their needs. We're not offending him. We're not burdening him by asking him to meet our needs. Jesus is saying, this is what friends are for. And he's applying it to himself. One scholar suggests that because our Western culture is so different that the only way we could really kind of get our arms around it if we illustrated it like this, like a friend who calls you in the middle of the night and says that his wife is in labor and need to get her to the hospital immediately, but my car won't start. Could I borrow your car? Jesus would say, who of you would say... I'm sorry, I left the keys in the kid's bedroom, and I don't really want to wake him up. That's the parable in today's language. That's what it means today. Only an unspeakably selfish jerk would produce such a lame excuse to leave his friend in the lurch when his wife is pregnant and in labor. When we remove all these cultural filters that separate the two cultures, it completely changes the way we understand what Jesus is teaching about prayer. But then that begs the question, well, then what do you do with the next verse, verse 8, when Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Again, the way that we typically, easily, and wrongly understand that is that the impudence belongs to the petitioner, the person who's knocking. He is so impudent that he will not be put off by these excuses, but boldly continue his pleading. That's so wrong. <laughs> we wrongly understand impudence to be synonymous with persistence and tenacity. Just keep knocking. But this word in the original is never, not once, used in that kind of way in the Bible. It's always used negatively. Impudence, as it's translated, the word means to improper conduct, disgraceful, shameless transgression of boundaries. This is a really bad thing, to be impudent in this way. The one with the impudence is not the man knocking on the door. It's the one inside who hesitates to help his friend at midnight. So what's the point of verse A? Eight. Well, when you remove our Western cultural lens that diminishes the importance of hospitality, the correct understanding is 
if you petition your friend with a request in the middle of the night, even though he's asleep and perhaps tempted to put you off with the weakest of excuses, he will grant your request, if not from friendship, out of a desire to keep his name from being shamed. Because he knows he's being impudent. The truth about prayer that Jesus is teaching in this parable is the same one that he teaches in a parable about prayer in Matthew chapter 7. Not connected to the Lord's Prayer, but a different parable about prayer. We know that because they both end exactly the same way. They both end, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Both of the parables are arguing from the lesser to the greater, right? If you, the lesser, will grant the request, how much more will God, the greater, do so? But there's another meaning that would have been evident to folks in the culture, and it refers back to the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is why Jesus tells this particular application of this parable after the Lord's Prayer. This is what connects it to the Lord's Prayer. The first petition of the Lord's Prayer is, of course, hallowed be your name. Jesus tells us to pray for something very important to God. In fact, what's most important to God, and that is the honor of his name. The Bible teaches that God incessantly works to preserve the honor of his name, to magnify the honor of his name. He will never let his name fall into dishonor. Let me just give you one very quick text from Ezekiel chapter 36. It says in verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God's people exist for the purpose of bringing honor to his name. That's what he's saying here. That's why we're here. God's name is equivalent to his person in the Bible. Well, think through how this applies to hallowed be your name. God is saying to his disciples, his friends, I am committed to answering your prayer for provision because you are my friend, but even more so because the glory of my name is at stake. My commitment to answer your prayer is not just rooted in my love for you. It is rooted in my commitment to preserve the honor of my name, which is my highest priority. I hope we hear Jesus' motivation for answering our prayers could not possibly be any higher, which should give us boldness in prayer as we come to him with requests that are consistent with the Lord's Prayer. God values nothing more highly than the glory of his name, and his promise to give us what we need in answer to prayer is grounded in his absolute highest commitment. This is so important for us to remember because, frankly, we tend to ground our confidence before God in things other than God. For instance, we've all been here. You have a dreadful day. You get up late. You're all discombobulated. You don't have time to read or study the Bible. You're repeatedly a jerk to those around you, to your family. You're late for work. You lie to your supervisor about it. Just a terrible day. Everything that could go wrong, and you do not respond well at all. 
you are in your worst light. And just before you go to bed, you get a phone call. And immediately you are apprised of an absolutely urgent need that you have. And there's only one person in the universe that can meet that need, and it is God. So you pray. How do you pray? You know how you pray. You pray, oh God, <laughs> I don't deserve this. You're probably not very happy with me right now. But this has happened, and only you can do this for me. I know that after my day today, you're probably not very likely to listen to this request, but would you please see your way clear to put my sins out of your mind, and would you please just do this? Well, in that prayer, what does your lack of confidence reveal about where you're grounding your confidence for answered prayer? You're grounding your confidence or your lack of confidence in the lousy performance that you have given before God, which is why you're so awkward and so apologetic. Grounding your confidence for answered prayer in your performance is a complete denial of the gospel of grace. Here's another example. You want something really bad. I mean, you really, really want it. You cannot pray for this without weeping. That's how intense your desire is. This need is so dear to you it's so intensely felt, and so it breaks your heart, and so you pray through tears, God, please, please, please show your mercy and grant this request. Many believers would tend at that point to maybe feel like maybe God will come across because it's something they want so transparently. They're asking so humbly, and they know that it breaks their hearts, and God knows that. So again, you're grounding your confidence not in the character of God, but about something about you and your prayer. When we do that, we turn God into the great pumpkin. You remember the great pumpkin? It's coming on again here in another month. If you have the kids, we'll have to suffer through it again. <laughs> Linus tells Charlie Brown that if your pumpkin patch is sincere enough, the great pumpkin will rise up out of the pumpkin patch and you'll have some sort of party with this pumpkin God anyway. It, the point is that Linus is grounding the favor and the visitation of the pumpkin god in his sincerity, in the sincerity of the pumpkin patch, which is never fully explained what that is. And whenever we ground our performance in something about us and not the grace of God, not the goodness of God, not the kindness of God, we're not only denying the gospel, you can't have legitimate confidence or assurance. Because anytime we base God's opinion of us or his opinion of a prayer we pray in something in us, ultimately we're going to have doubts because if it's rooted in something that we're doing, we're never going to know if it's good enough. If you're grounding your salvation even a tiny little bit in something that is up to you, you're not going to have assurance of your salvation because you're not going to know if you're good enough for whatever that little part is. Muslims don't have assurance of salvation. It's not taught. In fact, when a Muslim hears an evangelical talk about their relationship with God, they just assume, you guys are satanic because you assume that you are good enough for Allah. They don't understand the gospel. 
They don't have any assurance because they don't know whether they've been righteous enough. They don't know whether they're good enough. And so it's not part of even their theology to have assurance that they're going to be good enough for God, even if they blow up a bunch of other people. This does not mean that the way we approach God in our praying is irrelevant because God is so gracious. It's just all about him. No, Jesus expects us to approach him as our heavenly father, this infinite transcendent God who has adopted us through his grace. So the point is not to say that how we approach God is unimportant. The point is we should never base our confidence in God's willingness to answer our prayers and anything other than his love for us and his passion to honor his name by giving his friends what they need from him. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus applies this truth to our praying. He's saying, in light of God's relationship to you as his friend, in light of the fact that he is motivated to answer your prayer by the highest possible motivation, the glory of his name, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be open. The point of the parable is not that you have to keep on knocking, though that is taught somewhere else. In verse 11, he begins this second short parable after the Lord's Prayer, very similar to the way he began the first parable. And the first parable is, which of you has a friend? Instead, the second parable is, what father among you? Both questions. And then, as with the first parable, Jesus proposes an incredibly unlikely situation. Just as you would not have any friends who would be so incredibly inhospitable, likewise, there's no father among you who would treat his child like this. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? The contrast between a fish and a snake and an egg and a scorpion are not as bizarre as they might sound. Some fish do resemble snakes, certainly some that Jesus was thinking about and that his audience was thinking about. And when a scorpion rolls itself up into a ball, it's shaped like an egg. So Jesus is not just using these completely arbitrarily. Jesus is asking, what father would give these potential blessings to a child when they're asking for a blessing, would give them something that will kill them. And like the first parable, the answer is, nobody would do that. <laughs> no good parent would give something to his child that could kill him or her. Again, when Jesus applies this parable to prayer, he again uses the lesser to the greater comparison. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give? The verse sheds light on verses 9 and 10, too. Some people wrongly take that promise in 9 and 10 as basically a blank check. Ask whatever you will, God will give it to you. Just write out the check, have faith, believe. No, that can't be true for at least two reasons. First of all, remember the context. The disciples had just asked Jesus how to pray, and he tells them the kinds of things to ask for in the Lord's Prayer. What our priorities in prayer should be. So these petitions must be consistent with how Jesus has already told them to pray. Second in verse 11, verse 11 implies that it is the father and not the child who determines what is the good gift. The father makes the decision. He's the initiator, just as God the Father in heaven is. Jesus concludes the teaching by telling us that the father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Again, we see a difference here between Luke and Matthew's version. When Matthew gives these same two parables in chapter 7, he says the Father will give you good gifts to those who ask. 
Well, one of the main theological emphases of Luke in both his gospel and in Acts is Luke talks about the Holy Spirit more than just about anybody. One of his major theological emphases is the Spirit of God and the role of the Holy Spirit. That's a huge piece for Luke. So Matthew says, good gift. Well, for Luke, the good gift par excellence is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who indwells us. The Holy Spirit is one who empowers us. The Holy Spirit is one who unites us with Christ. The Holy Spirit is one who glorifies Jesus through us. And so it's certainly appropriate for Luke to say he'll give the Holy Spirit as the best of all possible gifts in addition to his Son. The point of both of these parables is simply this. These two unlikely scenarios will never happen. A shameful lack of the most important cultural virtue, hospitality, from a friend and a father who, when asked by his children for food, instead poisons them or kills them. Jesus takes those two completely unlikely scenarios and he uses them to illustrate how much more unlikely it is that God, your kind and generous Heavenly Father, and your completely faithful friend would not answer your prayer for his sake. This kind of confidence should give us boldness in prayer. I trust that that will happen. May God give us the grace to get our lives in tune with God's heart so that we can pray the things that God wants as our Father and as our friend for the glory of his name and for our eternal joy. Let's pray. God, you are so kind to us and you are so good and we do not appreciate nearly as much as we should the fact that the Lord of the universe, we can come to as our Father. Thank you, God, that you're always out for what's best for us. And you are certainly out for what is best for your name. And God, those two things converge when we come to you in prayer. God, help us to have faith believing. And God, we pray that our hearts would be in tune so that as we pray, we would be praying, what's on your heart? God, help us to do that. We pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Amen.